Well, thank you for tuning in to our Wednesday evening service here at Pleasant Valley South. Last week, we looked at the Lord's message to believers concerning persecution from the Sermon on the Mount. And we learned that there is a double blessing for the person who is persecuted for righteousness' sake. We also looked at John 15, where Jesus told his followers that a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, the fact that persecution, even unto death, is to be expected by those who live righteous lives, we may be inclined to ask, is it worth it? When it comes right down to it, am I really willing to die for Christ? Well, I submit to you this evening that for us to be absolutely convinced that our faith in Christ is worth giving our life, we must know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is who he says he is and that his eternal promises to his followers are indisputably true. With that purpose in mind, I want us to go to the book of Hebrews this evening Chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. And I've titled the message this evening, Jesus Christ, a different kind of man. Hebrews 1, 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. May God bless the reading of his word. Noted historian H.G. Wells listed in his Outlines of History the ten greatest men of all times. And number one on his list was Jesus Christ. As born-again Christians, we would wholeheartedly agree, but would also declare that Jesus was more than a man. If our appreciation of Jesus is based solely on his human attributes, accomplishments, and identity, then our conclusions concerning him would measure up severely and tragically lacking. Throughout history, the human accomplishments of some men have been recognized by historians by adding the title, The Great, to their names. There was Alexander the Great. There was Antiochus the Great. Peter the Great. Charlemagne the Great. But never Jesus the Great. He is Jesus, the one and only. He's in a class all by himself. Let's think for a moment about the uniqueness of Christianity as compared to the major religions of the world and the men who founded them. Someone has noted, you can take Buddha out of Buddhism and you still have Buddhism. You can take Confucius out of Confucianism and you still have Confucianism. You can take Muhammad out of Islam and you still have Islam. But if you take Christ out of Christianity, you cannot have Christianity. Christianity is not a code, it's not a creed, it's not a religion, not even a church. Christianity 
is about a personal relationship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Taking Christ out of Christianity would be like taking the notes out of music or taking the numbers out of mathematics. You can't have Christianity apart from the man, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God showed his infinite love for you and for me by descending to our level of existence, becoming a man like in many ways any other man who has ever walked the face of the earth. Paul wrote in Philippians 2 that Jesus came in the likeness of men and was found in appearance as a man. But while he did become a man like us, we know that he was also unlike us, distinctly different from any man who has ever lived or who ever will live. In our text this evening, we are given two reasons why Jesus Christ is a different kind of man. Before we get to that, I want to I give you a little background on the book of Hebrews, a distinctly different New Testament epistle that will help us understand and apply its truths to our lives. First of all, as you may already know, the human author of this epistle is not known. The most popular suggestions by biblical scholars are Paul, Barnabas, and Silas, Apollos, Luke, and Philip. Second of all, the recipients of the letter were a community of Jews or Hebrews. Throughout the book, there's a strong emphasis on the Levitical priesthood and animal sacrifices with no mention of Gentiles. Thirdly, which is important as we look at the book of Hebrews, is the date that it was written. We can be certain that it was written before the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD because the, the references to the sacrificial system are always in the present tense. Also, the mention of Timothy's release from prison in chapter 13 and the warnings of intensified persecution most likely point to a date between 67 and 69 B.C., just before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Therefore, these Jewish Christians, or Messianic Jews as they're called, were experiencing severe persecution that was intensifying uh, regularly, becoming more intense every day. And as a result, they were being tempted to abandon their faith in Christ and return to Judaism to escape it thereby determining, if they did, that it just wasn't worth the sacrifice. You know, that's the question that we all have to face when it comes to persecution. Is it worth the sacrifice? On our first trip to Israel, our tour guide uh, was a lady named Catherine. Catherine and her husband were Messianic Jews, they lived about uh, 20 miles south of Jerusalem, and one day as she was sharing with us about what it was like to be a Messianic Jew in modern-day Israel, she said something that I had never really even thought of. She said, as Messianic Jews today in Israel, we are considered outcast and are hated by all. She said, the Jews hate us because we have accepted Jesus as the long-awaited, the promised Messiah. She said that is highly offensive to the Orthodox Jew. Then she said the non-Jews hate us because we are Jews. 
She said, we are a people hated and despised on all sides in our country, and we are continually subjected to persecution from both Jews and non-Jews alike. The original recipients of Hebrews were continually facing similar persecution and forced to decide, is it worth it? The last thing I want us to understand about the book of Hebrews is the theme of the book. And, and the theme is the superiority of Jesus Christ. The word better is used 13 times throughout the book to describe the superiority of Christ. And because the audience is Jewish, Jesus is lifted up and declared to be better than anything Judaism has to offer. Better than any Old Testament institution, better than any Old Testament ritual, better than any Old Testament sacrifice, better than any Old Testament prophet, better than anyone or anything else. These Jewish Christians were coming under severe persecution for their faith in Christ. And we know that after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Romans, that persecution just went to a whole different level. The high priest Ananias was relentless in his persecution of all Jewish Christians. He had them banished from the temple and all the holy places around uh, the city of Jerusalem. This was extremely difficult for them because it had been a part of their lives uh, as long as they had been on the face of the earth. These were sacred locations and they were forbidden from going there now. He pronounced Messianic Jews as being unclean, just like we remember the uh, those who were suffering from leprosy were seen by the Jews as being unclean on that same level. They were forbidden to have any dealings with their own people, cut off from their own society. They were considered by fellow Jews to be even worse than Gentiles. Realizing this is easy for us to understand why the temptation to go back to Judaism was so strong. Everything that they, had, that they had lived for, their whole lives were turned upside down because of their faith in Christ. But God, through his inspired word, encourages them to hold on to their faith and confidence in Christ. The mediator of a better covenant and their great high priest. So 2,000 years later, we too can be encouraged and emboldened by his message. So the first reason that Jesus Christ is a different kind of man is because he is God. Jesus Christ is God. Hebrews 1, the first part of verse 3 says, who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, I want to stop right there and examine these descriptions of Christ given here. First of all, the brightness of his glory. The word brightness here, your translation may say radiance, is found nowhere else in the entire New Testament. It, it expresses the idea of sending forth light, shining forth. Note here that it is, it's, never to correct, it's never correct to say that Jesus reflects God's light, for he is God himself, and he radiates his own glory. Just as the rays of the sun give light and warmth to the earth, so Jesus is the light of God shining into the hearts of men. Just as the sun was never without or separated from its brightness, so God was never without or separated from the glory of Christ. 
would never be able to see or enjoy the fullness of God's light apart from the revelation of His Son, Jesus. Turn to John's Gospel, chapter 8 and verse 12. In John 8, 12, we read these words. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Not only is Jesus the brightness of God's glory, we see also that he is the expressed image of his person. As with the previous description, this one is found only here in the entire New Testament. This phrase in the Greek refers to the impression made by a die or a stamp or a seal. The design on that stamp when pressed into the wax leaves a perfect imprint exactly like the stamp. Likewise, Jesus, the Son, is the perfect, the personal imprint of God the Father. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 15. In Colossians 1, 15, we have this description of Jesus as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Before Christ's incarnation, people would ask the question, God... What are you like? When God sent his son Jesus to the earth, he said, here's my son, and he looks just like me. You want to know what I'm like? Look at my son. Behold him, for we are the same. Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and my father are one. And then in John 14, 9, he said, he who has seen me has seen the father. A perfect copy of Jesus the Father, equal to him in all, in all points. Throughout the gospel, we read of events which demonstrate the powerful attributes that belong to God alone, representing undeniable evidence of Christ's claim to be God. I, when we were in the Galilee region, we had a, a boat tour, a boat trip out on the Sea of Galilee, and I remember um, we had planned to, uh, they had two different places that they would launch the boats, a set of boats on each, at each one, and according to how the wind was blowing, if it was, uh, then they would launch from another, one of the other, the other ports. And the day that we were planned to go on the trip, we had our, our tour guide got in touch with us and said, we're going to have to take a route around to the other side of the lake because there's a... Uh, the weather forecast says that the winds are coming to come down off of the uh, off of the mountains and stir up the water and we don't want to be out in the midst of it it reminded me of just what Jesus faced and and how he dealt with those winds as they uh, disrupted the calmness of that sea and we see that he just spoke the words and calmed the storm his disciples were afraid for their own lives but he demonstrated power over nature by calming that storming sea with just the 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 words from his mouth. We see when he went to the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the miracle that he performed there was to turn the water into wine. So he, he demonstrated his power over nature. And on numerous occasions, he demonstrated power over physical disease. We see that many times when Jesus was, when they brought the sick to him, that he healed the sick. He had, he had power over demons. 
the Gadarene demonic came to Jesus as they landed and he came out of the tombs and, and remember that Jesus cast those legion, those, that, that group of demons out of the Gadarene demonic. So he, he, had, he had power over the spirit world as well. And of course he demonstrated power over death. He, he disrupted many a funeral by raising the corpse, the person who had deceased and give, bringing life back to them. Of course our the familiar story to us is when he, he raised Lazarus after Lazarus had been dead for three days. So he had power of all these things. But the most godly attribute that Christ showed was his power to forgive sin. And that was the one that was opposed the most by the Jewish religious elite, the scribes and the Pharisees. Because they said themselves, only God has the power to forgive sin. And they were claiming in that very statement that this was God but they refused to believe that their religion would not allow them to accept Jesus as God well not only was Jesus a different kind of man because he's God we also see here that he's a different kind of man because Jesus is the redeemer in the last part of Hebrews 1 3 it says when he had by himself purged our sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus himself on the cross for our sin, paying the price that we deserve to pay, Jesus purged or wiped out our sins. We're all familiar with the passage, Romans 3.23. It says that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 the first part tells us that the wages of sin is death. That is eternal separation from God in a fiery hell, leaving us in a hopeless predicament. But Christ, because he loved us so much, the Bible says he went to the cross and he died our deserved death for us, thereby taking the punishment for our sin on himself. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love towards us, his own love towards us. And that while we were still sinners, still in our sin, Christ died for us. One of my favorite verses describing Christ's substitutionary atonement is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Not that Jesus became sin, but that he took on our sin, my sin, your sin, the sin of every man and woman, boy and girl that's ever lived. He took them on himself and paid the ultimate penalty in payment for our sins. You know, in the Old Testament, the priest had to continually offer the animal sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for the sin of the people. He would offer those sacrifices and spread the, the blood on the mercy seat of the, of the uh, uh, Ark of the Covenant. And God would see that blood and he would, their, their sins were cur uh, covered, but they were not purged. They were not wiped away. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, offered himself as that perfect once and for all sacrifice, never needing to be repeated again. Turn over in Hebrews to chapter 9 and verse 12. Hebrews 9, 12 says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most 
holy place once for all, having obtained eternal salvation. Once for all, never to be repeated again. And only Jesus could do that. The sinless Son of God could offer himself as payment for our sins. As much as I love my family and I love other people, my death for their sins would not accomplish anything except my death. But Jesus, because he was the sinless Son of God, his precious blood shed on our behalf, not only covered, not just covered our sins, but removed our sins. You know, when when God looks down at us, he sees the precious blood of Jesus that was shed on our behalf. And that verse says that we become the righteousness of God in him. What a great blessing. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He dealt with our sin problem, bearing the penalty of sin for all who will accept his sacrifice, believe in him, and receive him. And having completed his work of purging our sins, it says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Biblical scholars tell us that this act of sitting down is a contrast to that of the priest under the Old Covenant. If you look in the Old Testament when it describes the tabernacle and even in the temple after it was built in Jerusalem, there were no seats there for the priest to sit because their work was never done. But Jesus, it says, offered one sacrifice. And after completing that sacrifice, he sat down in the place of highest honor at the Father's right hand, demonstrating that his work was done. You know, as we consider Jesus' words, if they persecuted you, they will also persecute me. That brings up all kind of emotions within us. And, you know, the human side of us says, well, you know, I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to, to, to stand up for Jesus. I, I'm, I'm willing to be recognized as one of his followers. I, I'm willing to, you know, make a sacrifice for Jesus. But what did he say? Persecution, and we've talked about that now for the last two Wednesday nights. Being persecuted for righteousness sake. Being persecuted for standing up for Jesus. And a part of us says, well, you know, that's not going to ever happen to me. You know, we live in the United States, and that's, you know, that happens in other parts of the world, but I'm never going to have to face that. Well, just as I said last week, the more we see the world changing around us and our own country changing around us and how Christians are being verbally attacked and, and now even physically attacked. If the Lord tarries His coming, we as Christians could very well suffer persecution and even martyrdom for our faith in Jesus. You know, my prayer is, Lord, if it comes to that, I pray to You for the strength to be able to stand and say, no matter what the cost, that I'll stand for you, never denying our Lord Jesus Christ, but standing in the face of persecution. So that question is, are we willing to suffer persecution? Jesus said that it may very well come for us. As I said in the beginning, we must be absolutely convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. And that Jesus' promises to us, especially when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, are true. They can be trusted. I had the privilege 
back in December of 2019 to meet a man who had been persecuted for righteousness sake. It happened in Ukraine in December of 2019. I want to introduce you to this man. His name is Farhod. Farhod. He lived in Krasnograd, Ukraine. Of course, if you're familiar with our Ukrainian ministry, you know that this is where we go. That's our base of operations in, in eastern Ukraine, where we have been going out from for the last eight, seven or eight years and ministering in the villages surrounding Krasnograd. And what my, my normal routine has been for the last few years is after we've done our ministry in the summer, usually in June or July, we create a lot of prospects and our, the, our partners in ministry there, the Ukrainian pastors will go and they will begin to immediately work with those prospects. They develop uh, Bible study groups. Some of those Bible study groups have, have uh, become churches. And so what I like to do is after we've done ministry in Ukraine that summer, I like to travel back over there in the wintertime and be able to meet some of those new Christians and attend their Bible studies and and just see what God is doing there. Well, in December of 2019, Randy East and I had made our trip there, and uh, we met Farhod and his family. Farhod's wife is named Tamara, and they have six beautiful children that you can see in this picture here. Um, they are originally from the country of Kazakhstan. It's located uh, in, the cent in Central Asia, has a 70% Muslim population. Well, Farhod was raised in a Muslim home. He, he married Tamara, who was all, also a Muslim, and they began to raise a family. Well, through the witness of a friend, Farhod came to accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And, of course, immediately went and shared with Tamara his newfound faith, and she as well accepted Christ. Well, when their extended families learned of their new faith in Christ, they immediately turned their backs on them. And they, Farho told me through an interpreter, he said, they considered us as if we had died, that we no longer existed. We were no longer a part of their family. We were not uh, welcome at family gatherings. And they would not even greet us when they would meet us in the city. They had been completely wiped out of their own families. To make it even worse, their own families reported them to the Muslim authorities in their city. Gave them names and said, this man and his wife, of course not identifying them as their family, but said they have abandoned the faith and are followers of Jesus Christ. Well, shortly afterward, Farhod was arrested he was taken to the prison. He was beaten by the authorities and threatened with more physical harm if he did not abandon his newfound faith. After beating him again, they released him and gave him a few days to think about what the decision he had made and said, we'll give you that time to return to Islam. When he refused to deny Christ, the authorities came again, arrested him, beat him, and then this time took the torture to a different level. I'd never heard of this before. I didn't 
think about this being a, a way that Christians were being persecuted. But they stripped Farho down to, uh, took his clothes off and began to skin his legs. In other words, they were making incisions and actually peeling the skin off of his legs. I cannot imagine the pain that was inflicted by those. And they not only did it once, they did it on both legs in three or, different, three or more different places on each leg. And they released him and said, if this does not cause you to turn back to Islam, your family is next. Your family is next. So Farhod knew. He, he believed them. He didn't have any doubt that they would follow through on their threats. And so he, went, he began to pray and said, God, I, I need your direction. I believe that, that Jesus is who he says he is. I know that he's with me, but I, 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 want, I pray for, for your direction, the direction of your Holy Spirit and how I can protect my family and that we can escape from this persecution. He said, the Lord spoke to me. Now, he didn't say I had a vision, but he said the Lord spoke to me. And he told him to go in the middle of the night to take his family, his wife and his six children, to not take any of their belongings and to go to the train station there in their city. And he said, that's all, that's all I need to do. He said it was amazing when they got to the train station that they were admitted on the train. They purchased their tickets. They were admitted on the train without any question about who they were, where they were going. He said that was just unheard of. Anyone leaving Kazakhstan would be uh, intensely questioned about why they were leaving, when they were coming back, what was the purpose of their visit, all these things. And he said, I, I knew that God's hand was in it because they did not even ask us a single question. So they got on the train and the, he said, the, the only thing that I knew from the Lord was, get on a train headed west. Headed west. And I don't know whether that was the only train headed west that night. But he and his wife and children boarded that train headed west, not having any idea where they were going. Miraculously, the Lord delivered them into a city, the city of Lugansk in southeastern Ukraine. And in Lugansk, he said, they got off the train and a man came up to them and introduced himself as a pastor in that city. He said, I, I don't know how he knew we were coming. I don't even know how he knew who I was. But he introduced himself and he said, I have a pastor friend further west into Ukraine. Get you away from the border. And said, I'm going to contact him and tell him your situation and see what his suggestion would be. Well, as the Lord would have it, the pastor was Pastor Vladimir in Krasnograd, our ministry partner there. A pastor said, he said, I know the heart of Vladimir and I know he will do what's best for you. Vladimir made arrangements for them to come to Krasnograd. They came to Krasnograd, Vladimir already had it arranged for them to put new clothes on them, to feed them. Farhod said they hadn't eaten in 
quite a few days. They were all hungry. The children, of course, we can imagine what that was for him, but for them. But he, but Pastor Vladimir made sure all the needs were the met, put a roof over the head, put food in their stomach and clothing on their back. When I met Farhod and Tamara and the children, Pastor Vladimir had already got them involved in the ministry there at Krasnograd Church. He also, and again, this is, this is how God worked in the lives of these people. Pastor Vladimir had no clue who these people were. Never met them before in his life, but through the recommendation of his pastor friend in Lugansk, in Lugansk and the Holy Spirit working in his heart. He had the opportunity to purchase a house that was adjoining his house there on where the Krasnograd Church campus is located. Now, this was a house that was in a bad state of disrepair. But Vladimir said, you know, we're going to fix it up. And we're, this is going to be a place where Farhod and Tamara and these beautiful six children can, can live as they are involved in the ministry here. And as he talked about what was going to be required to renovate this house, of course, Randy with the Ukraine Partners for, for Christ said, you know, we, we want to be a part of that. So God led him to, to contribute to that. We were able to contribute th some through our mission uh, offering, our mission budget here at, at the church. And so we were able to partner with them in the cost of renovating that house and providing a home for Farhod and Tamara and their children. Now, that day that we met them, they were asked, Farhod was asked about the persecution and the Lord's rescue. And this is what he said. I was willing to die for my Lord if it was required of me. And I never even considered denying him. Even when the persecution, the torture became so severe, it never even entered my mind to deny my Lord. He said, he is my savior and he is my provider. And he can be trusted to meet all of our needs. I want you to look one more time into the face of a man who has been persecuted for righteousness' sake, raised a Muslim, but his life radically changed by Jesus Christ, accepted Christ, realizing what that might cost him. It almost cost him his life. But to be able to meet a man like that, look him in the eye, and hear the testimony of a a believer of Christ. I've never been so humbled in my life. I've never been more convicted in my life because in my mind I thought, I don't know whether I could have done that or not. It caused me to really begin to search my own heart and my commitment to Christ. Is it real? Or is my commitment real just because compared to Farhood? And the sacrifice that he was required to make, mine's pretty easy. Would I be willing to be a farhood? Would I be willing 
to face persecution, torture, and even death for my Jesus. That's my prayer. And if it comes to that, I pray that I can be like this man. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. May we trust God for such boldness and such conviction in our own lives. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for the blessing of meeting Farhood and Tamara, these six beautiful children. God, there in Krasnograd, they had such radiance about them, Lord. They radiated with your love. Father, I, I thank you for that conviction. of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and being willing to face persecution, to stand up and let others recognize me as a follower of Christ no matter what it cost. Father, I pray that, um, I pray for Farhood and Tamara and these children, Lord, I Thank you that you've given them opportunity to be involved in ministry there in Krasnograd. And, and Lord, I know you're going to use them in their testimony in a, in a mighty way. And God, we, at this very moment, we know that in Ukraine, the Russian troops are amassing at the borders again. And our, our brothers and sisters in Christ there may be facing that same type of persecution in these days ahead. We pray, God, for their strength. We pray for their protection, Lord. But we pray for their strength and for their courage to stand. And God, I pray that you will be with us as your church here at Pleasant Valley and the church in the United States today. That we'll be thankful for the fact that we have been protected from that kind of persecution in the past. But Lord, knowing that that persecution could very well come in the near future for all of us. May we stand strong for you, Lord. And we just know that you can equip us to do that very thing, Father. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And we thank you for the promises of your word. And we pray this prayer in thanksgiving in the name of our Savior and your Son, Jesus. Amen.